There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. Samsung has confirmed it will be launching the next Samsung Galaxy smartphone range on the 11th of February. And as you can imagine, that's opened the floodgates on rumours on everything from the expected name of the new devices to what are the new features. Pocalint's Chris Hall has been following all the rumours closely and joins me to tell us what we can expect from the new S20 range. And I'm back from CES where I interviewed a load of really interesting people. Look out for more interviews over the coming weeks, including Nick Woodman, the founder and CEO of GoPro. Woodman and the company says it's been enjoying a resurgence of late in the action camera market following the launch of the Hero 8 and Hero 8 Max cameras. But is it out of the woods yet? With a failed drone launch and a constantly shifting landscape, I sat down with a laid-back boss to find out more. And our reviews editor, Mike Lowe, talks us about one of his favourite gadgets from CES, the Lenovo ThinkPad Fold X1. It's a laptop with a detachable keyboard and a folding screen. So is it a future of working on the go or a fad that will be out of favour as quick as it's arrived? But first, back to you, Chris. Tell us more about what we can expect from Samsung next month. Well, Samsung has invited media to its launch event on the 11th of February, which is being held in San Francisco. And it looks like there's going to be a glittering array of phones on offer. The top of the bill is obviously going to be the new family of S. 20 Samsung Galaxy S20 devices. Yes, that's right. They're not being called the S11, which everybody had previously assumed. They're now apparently shifting the name to S20 instead. Why do you think that is? I think that it's just a chance for Samsung to sort of refresh, break the cycle a little bit and bring back a little bit more excitement to their lineup of phones. Obviously, flagship phones haven't been selling as well as most of the big manufacturers would like. And I think the renaming is taking advantage of the of the year so they can launch the S20 in 2020, which is too many 20s to be avoided. And they can lean on all these amazing things like 2020 vision and all the rest of this and uh, really ham that up a bit. So I think that's what they're trying to do is just to to re-enliven the uh, Samsung Galaxy S range. And so what are we expecting from these new flagship devices in terms of power and performance? Have the leaks given us any information on that so far? Well, the leaks have been torrid over the past week or so. Um, there's so many. There's so much information we almost don't know how much of it we need to discard and discount. But it looks like Samsung are going to be launching three phones and they're broadly replacing the S10, S10 Plus and the S10 Plus 5G. Um, so we're going to have the, we're going to have three phones and they are going to be broadly aligned around the same sort of core power. So Samsung's late, latest hardware, the Exynos 990 or the Samsung uh, or the uh, Qualcomm Snapdragon 865, which is all going to be very exciting and powerful. But the big difference is going to be around the the size of the displays and the cameras that they're going to put on the back. So you're looking at phones that range all the way from uh, around 6.2 inches up to 6.9 inches. And the camera loadout 
is apparently going to give us a blistering array of different cameras covering everything from telephoto to wide angle to a 10 times periscope zoom. So there's going to be a lot packed in here. The The interesting thing about it is that on the two lower tier, we call them lower, but they're not really lower, the two lower spec phones, the <laughs> S20 and the S20 Plus, they report, Samsung reporting to be using a new 12 megapixel camera on the back that apparently has much bigger pixels within the sensor. So it should be very good at absorbing light. This is something that manufacturers have been trying to do for a long time. And Samsung seems to be making a big step towards having a bigger sensor for capturing more light. But then when you shift over to their top phone, which is going to be called the S20 Ultra, apparently, the name may change, but that's what we hear at the moment. On this okay. one, they're apparently going to use a 108 megapixel sensor. Wow. And that's, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? 108 yeah. megapixels. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, I mean, I remember covering the, remember the Nokia PureView all those years ago. They had like a 42 megapixel sensor and that everybody thought that was like super exciting. Yeah. So well, what are you going to do with that many pixels without creating well, too much noise? That's the interesting question because this isn't the first time that we've seen 108 megapixels. We've seen it used by uh, Xiaomi last year. Okay. And Mike reviewed that phone, and he said that there were some inherent problems around the 108 megapixel sensor. He said it would do a lot of things, but the native photo resolution for that is then 27 megapixels because it clumps the pixels into groups of four. And that's what we're right. seeing time and again is we're seeing... So a lot of people have used a 48 megapixel sensor, for example, and then they just grouped those together to give you a 12 megapixel photo. So exactly the, the approach that Samsung takes, we don't know, because obviously if you take 108 and divide it by nine, you end up back at 12 again. So you may end up having 12 megapixel photos made from blocks of nine pixels from the sensor. What's interesting to me about this is that Samsung is taking a totally different approach to sensors between the S20 Ultra and the S20 and S20 Plus, because there's one philosophy that says use more megapixels, and there's another philosophy that says use less megapixels, but make those pixels bigger. And Samsung is doing both with this new range of handsets. So exactly how it's going to stand on stage on the 11th of February and pitch, this is the best sensor and this is the best sensor at the same time without contradicting itself, we just don't know. It's going to take some salesmanship. But I think what's really going on here is that Samsung is trying to create a super phone with super specs, which is what the S20 Ultra looks like it is. And I think they're creating that phone because in some markets, big, sec big specs sell well, especially over in places like China and in India and places like that. Those are markets where specs really, really matter. And if you've got big numbers, you sell more phones. Now, we've seen the specs game sort of intensify in recent weeks. I saw that OnePlus, for example, is touting a 120-megahertz 120 uh, screen. There's other things that just – it's starting to get a bit of a minefield. It, do you feel that's the case this year? Is it going to be trying to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff? It's kind of a uh, specs overload. And in some ways, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a mess, to be honest. I mean – Apple have been quite good with the iPhone in not really talking about specs very much. You know, they don't go on about how much RAM it's got. They've started to be drawn into that in recent years. But the most important thing has always been about experience. And the experience of using any of these phones is not, is not defined by the specs. The specs is the sort of thing that the fans talk about. And when they compare things head to head, they say, this has faster storage than this phone. Therefore, this one is better. Whereas in reality, if you end up with a 
a weak antenna in it and you can't get a connection, then it's not going to work. Or if the software that's been bundled on there by the manufacturer slows everything down, the hardware starts to, to not make a big difference. And also we've seen much more emphasis on AI in recent years, which has meant that it doesn't always matter what core hardware you have in your phone and what the specs are because the AI may be doing some of the heavy lifting. And if you take uh, the Google Pixel, for example, that's a that's a, a great demonstration of AI working in the camera. 12 megapixel camera on the back, they've had a single camera and Google was able to achieve portrait effects that nobody else could really match, not with two sensors, not with more megapixels, not with all of this other stuff going on, time of flight sensors and all the rest of it just because they have better AI, because they're better at machine learning and all of that kind of stuff. So, yes, I think the specs have kind of gone into overload. And you can see that in some areas that's going to help these manufacturers sell phones. But to be honest, at the moment, a lot of it is vanity specs and not a lot more. Now, last year at the S10 launch, we saw not only the S10, the S10 Plus and the S10 5G, but we also saw Samsung's Galaxy Fold, the, the company's first foldable device, which admittedly had a, uh, a kind of a, an interesting launch window that eventually sort of came out towards the tail end of last year. Are we likely to see any other devices apart from those three, four S20 devices launching on the 11th? Yes, you absolutely will, because Samsung is also going to launch a second generation folding phone. And the name is believed to be the Galaxy Z Flip. So the flip kind of gives it away because it's a flip phone and Galaxy Z seems to be the new sort of family name for folding phones that Samsung is using. And this is a clamshell style phone and the leak so far suggests that it's going to be fairly similar in design to the Motorola Razr that was announced uh, in the tail end of 2019. And that's kind of exciting because it means that you can then take a regular sized phone when it's open, fold it in half and have a smaller phone, slip it in your pocket and away you go. And, uh, I suppose that should. I suppose that should mean it's it's slightly more affordable. The, it seems that the aim of Samsung is to bring that down because the Galaxy Fold was about two thousand pounds, and as, as a first generation device and as a big phone with lots of power, that was fine. I mean, the thing had like seven cameras or something on it, and it does look like the the price the price is supposed to be coming down. So I'd expect the Galaxy Z Flip to be aligned with the S20 in some way. So people are talking about perhaps a £1,000, $1,000 price tag on it, um, just so that this becomes a little bit more mainstream. And the other thing that's going to come with that is that some of the some of the specs, having just ranted about specs for a moment previously, some of the specs aren't going to be right up at the top. So the suggestion is that it'll have a slightly older generation of uh, processor sitting in it. So it may not be as powerful as the, as the the newer phones, but may that may make little difference at all. And um, but you'll get a foldable display. But you'll get a foldable display, and this is um, it'll it'll be interesting because there was, as you said, uh, in the about the Galaxy Fold, there ha- there was a little sort of of delay in launch while Samsung went back and redesigned some aspects of the display and how it was mounted in the phone and stuff. So it will be interesting to see how Samsung reacts this time and how that phone comes off. I mean, obviously, there's going to be this big race between Samsung and Motorola to get these flip phones out onto the market. And it's it's going to be exciting because they are a very interesting form factor. Still to come, Mike gives us his opinion on the Lenovo ThinkPad Fold X1 laptop. 
I mean, it's it's the most interesting thing I've seen this year so far in terms of tech. But would it would it gel? Will I will I sort of feel like it makes sense to to live with every day? That's kind of part of the interest of getting the chance to review these things, you know. Founded in 2002 after a surfing holiday, GoPro is the go-to action camera creating and dominating the market segment ever since. But after its meteoric rise and an IPO in 2014, the company in the market has plateaued somewhat. Add to that an expensive failed launch of a drone and things weren't looking good for the company. But, says the CEO, all that has changed with the launch of the GoPro Hero 8 range last year and things are starting to turn around. I caught up with the founder, Nick Woodman, at this year's CES in Las Vegas, amongst the hustle and bustle of the show, to find out what's in store for the company in the future. I started by asking him, was there still life in the action camera market? What do you think? Well, I mean, you know, it's that thing. It's, it's, are, there, are there people still, are there still people trying to come along new to the market, or is it people that are just rebuying because they're upgrading for the new technologies? Well, both. And, um, you know, unfortunately... Uh, when at GFK, I think it was, uh, which tracks sell-through at retail, they came to us and they they asked us uh, in the early days, what did we want to call the market? And they were thinking of calling it the action camera market. We said, no, 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 let's, that's, that's too narrow. We'll come back to you with something. And before we could come back to them, they published a report calling it the action camera market, and they pigeonholed, unfortunately, our category of, of cameras as action. And we think of it as um, the, we make activity capture devices. You might say, oh my God, come on, action, activity, what's the difference? Well, activity is a lot of things uh, and action is a subset of that. And uh, it, it, it unfortunately pigeonholes uh, GoPro as a kind of action sports, uh, thrill seeker uh, company or, or a company that only serves those types of consumers. And the reality is if you look at the types of content that a GoPro customer is capturing and sharing uh, socially, Instagram, YouTube, uh, TikTok, and the like, it's every activity under the sun. And they're used by uh, professional production crews for film and television. Uh, they're used by uh, commercial uh, companies for doing research on development of their own products. And so um, really, we've, we've sought to build the world's most versatile camera. And I think the proof is in the pudding in, in how many use cases you see uh, a GoPro being used for. So yeah, our industry is alive and well, um, but it's, it's on us to continue to improve the versatility of the products and, and to broaden people's perception of what a GoPro can be used for. And do you think that's perhaps one of the problems is that you've, over the last 18 years, you've had a few competitors, but the majority of time you've been leading the market or been really the only one in the market. And is that stifled to the sort of sense of, trying to drive that competition. If you look on the mobile phone side of things, it's, you've got, say, Apple versus Samsung or versus Huawei, and they're, they're very, you've got to, there's a really stiff competition between them, so you've got to keep on innovating at a high pace. Well, we've had more competition uh, than most people give us credit for over the years. Uh, people forget about the competition because they kind of go away. Uh, so. so that tells us that we're doing a good job. But then a new crop of competitors always comes up and keeps us on our toes, and um, really forces us to definitely be more innovative and fast-paced than we otherwise would be if there really was no one else in the market. Uh, so the, the old adage that competition is good for the consumer is a thousand percent accurate. I mean, I can tell you right now that we have definitely made more 
aggressive product decisions and packed more into uh, recent GoPros uh, because of competition than, than, than we would have. Uh, in other years where we didn't have as much competition, uh, we uh, didn't, we weren't as aggressive. But then that ended up actually hurting us because the reality is uh, in, in our, I think for any consumer product company, um, the consumer is getting more and more demanding as more and more accustomed to being wowed every year with a reinvention of each product category. And the fact that we are largely the category means, yeah, it's, it's largely on us to be the company uh, that somehow reinvents ourselves every 12 months. Uh, but fortunately, we've been doing a good job of that for the last couple of years, uh, and we're in a great spot. And so that, going on that sort of reinventing yourself approach, how, what do you think the key is for GoPro to remain relevant in, in, in a changing marketplace? You know, that sort of smartphones now have got you know, much better cameras than they used to have, and while they're not ready for action sort of environments as yet, you know, it's still the, the landscape is constantly changing. And so how do you stay relevant? Uh, well, first and foremost, you have to be very engaged with your customer and listen to what the hell they're saying to you. The customer really w wants to tell you what they want in the next product. And they, they tell you indirectly through their purchase decisions. Uh, they tell you directly through their social posts and the uh, direct research uh, that you uh, conduct with them. And then it's really up to the company to quickly uh, synthesize all that into great product decisions that lead to uh, compelling offerings that people are going to get excited about every year. It, in the early days of GoPro, we could uh, get away with imagining on behalf of the customer because the category was so new the customer didn't even know what they wanted. Um, but I'd say about the time of Hero 5, uh, that really changed and the, and the customer really had a keen sense of what they wanted. And we were a little bit slow for a couple of years there to shift from being the company that said, hey, we're going to innovate based on our gut to uh, a company that today uses a ton of research and data to make product decisions on behalf of the customer. And I think that's why you're seeing a resurgence at GoPro uh, and the, the breakthrough hits like Hero 7 uh, last year and now this year Hero 8 and, 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 and Max, they weren't accidents. They were directly informed by our customer input. And is that some of the reasoning behind you've obviously the Go, um, GoPro Hero 8 uh, obviously has modular stuff. I know you've announced a, a light at, at the show as well. Is that guided by some of that data that's, and thinking behind it in trying to expand the range beyond it but trying to address the individual needs of, of all these niches that you have? Customization is key because we can't build everything our customers want into the camera itself because then it becomes too expensive for everybody, right? Whereas if we take a modular approach, like we are with the media mod, the light mod, and the display mod, um, it allows a, a, a user to modify, customize the GoPro to their specific needs, add performance at a cost, but we don't burden every GoPro that we make with that, whether it's the size, the weight, uh, the cost, the complexity, it's, it's going to, uh, using a GoPro is going to become an increasingly tailored experience for our customers. And do you see that going forward, that there'll be multiples of, of different mods for different environments beyond yes. the core example that you've got at the moment? 
and, and that allows you to grow the family but still have one core unit that fits through it. Absolutely. It gives the consumer a chance to make, to tailor each GoPro for their own particular needs. Um, and then it's pretty exciting when you think of where it can go uh, because, um, you know, we see ourselves as uh, designers of the world's most versatile cameras and uh, you need only use your imagination to imagine through a modular approach just how versatile we can make these products. Now, in the recent last couple of years, we've seen a huge rise in vloggers and influencers and things like that. How has that impacted your business or have you felt that that's always, you know, for a positive, I presume, but have you always felt that those kind of people have, have always used GoPro or have been around using your products for a long time and therefore it's everybody else has just caught up rather than you having to catch up with them now? No, we've definitely tailored uh, Hero 8 Black and Max to better serve uh, the, the vlogger and influencer community. Um, you know, in previous interviews, like with around Hero 7 Black, I, I, I made a joke about um, why didn't more vloggers use a GoPro? Why are they still using these, these big cameras? And I got, you know, roasted uh, with social comments of all the reasons why and, you know, Woodman, you don't understand us and all this. <laughs> I, was, and I was actually kidding when I made the comment, right. but, you know, the way that the uh, comment sphere works and say something <laughs> and then you're going to die by it. But then we really went to work. We said, well, they're right about some of these things. Uh, and so uh, we engaged a lot of vlogger influencers and, and, and made sure that we addressed as many of their desires as, and concerns as possible with Hero 8 uh, Black and Max. And, you know, it's one of the things I'm most proud of with the launch of these products is that when you read the social comments, people really embraced it. And they said, Man, these, this, these products look spot on. Um, and the proof is in the pudding. We're seeing some incredible content being created by the, the vlogger and, and influencer community. And, um, you know, that just makes us even more enthusiastic to uh, tailor our, our products, in, whether in the, via the camera itself or through the mod accessories, uh, to enable these, uh, to, to address the needs of these important customer segments. It's, it's, customer segmentation is really important to respect and, 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 deliver uh, meaningful solutions for. Uh, in previous years, we just didn't address enough customer segments and now we realize that our, our products are so versatile that through little tweaks here and there and better communication about what the products can do, we can address the needs of more people. Now on the drone side of things, you obviously experimented with Karma. That's now closed down, so to speak. What do you think you've, you've learned from that experience in, in that has then helped you shape and perhaps avoid some of the mistakes you've made with, you know, to make those with GoPro. Uh, well, having a, a, a very good understanding of what's the total market opportunity and, and what is the cost of developing uh, uh, to, to serve that opportunity. Uh, the drone category specifically, uh, it's very expensive from an R&D perspective. To be, you know, delivering tip of spear right. performance, and yet the um, the price that you can charge for these devices, the resulting margin and, and, and profitability profile of that business is horrid, and that's just not a good business to be in. No matter how so, exciting the products are, no matter how much fun they are, what they enable, um, for better or for worse, we're a business. We've got to pr provide. Uh, a significant return on investment and, and create value for our shareholders. 
uh, while providing uh, value for our, our end user. And, and exiting the drone business turned out to be the right call. I mean, that industry has collapsed over the last couple of years. Um, so thank heavens that we, we exited when we did. Um, so lesson learned is uh, to really make darn sure you understand and believe in the size of the market opportunity and that you you're, uh, can afford to uh, invest to build the best possible product and that you're going to be happy with the return on investment. Going back to the cameras, where's next? I know you were talking, alluding earlier in, in conversations about software is important uh, and that's an exciting thing, but where do you see, not necessarily a, what's happening, what, what we're going to see in, in the Hero 9, for example, but where do you see the bigger picture of, of GoPro moving in the next five years? Software is a big part of it. Um, so much is possible through uh, a mobile application today, as, as we, we, we know. And I think GoPro now has credibility um, as a uh, capable uh, and, and competent software developer, uh, which you couldn't say two, three years ago, but we're there now. And um, we're focused on now expanding GoPro's brand and, and solution relevance, not just to people who are passionate enough about um, experience capture and sharing to buy a GoPro, but you know maybe their phone is enough for them, or maybe they're just getting into it, but they really love the GoPro brand, and um, they'd, they'd love it if we had a software offering, an app offering that could help them get more out of the photos and videos that they capture with their phone. Um, we're already developing so much of this for uh, a GoPro camera owner that we recognize we should open this up and make make it more of a powerful uh, and, and exciting solution for smartphone-only users. Um, and there's ways to monetize their use of the app as well. And we shouldn't, you know, have the 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 price of admission to the GoPro experience be starting at two hundred dollars with a sure. Hero 7 Silver up to $500 with a, a Max camera. Uh, we can, we can you know, let people in the tent for a, a far lower cost if they're having a software-only solution. And that's really exciting because that can really expand the number of consumers that we can serve and importantly leverage this incredible brand that we've built in our technology to serve more people in a meaningful way. And so as a company, we're really excited about this. And given a chance, and the final question I have is given a chance of, of accessing the cupboard of all the goodies that you make, what, what's your perfect GoPro setup? For me today? Yeah, what do you use? What, what do I you use kind Max of... exclusively, um, which is a, I'm, I'm really excited about because it's so new. Uh, and I've been obviously a hero user for God knows how many years, <laughs> uh, since 2009 uh, with the HD Hero. Uh, for me to move to a new form factor was like, wow, I'm, I'm really going to do this? At first I thought, oh, Max, it's a little bigger, it's a little heavier. I don't even notice it. I mean, I use a bite mount. Uh, I can't tell the difference in weight. And then I use our magnetic swiveling clip that I, I clip to my ski jacket. That My, my Max camera's flopping around as I aggressively ski and my footage looks incredible and so um, I I don't use the 360 as much I mainly shoot in hero mode right. which is the you know single lens mode but in max super view which is 26 degrees wider than hero 8 black with no distortion uh, the six mics eliminate all wind noise it's it's my max is a foolproof GoPro as foolproof as ever as, as there's ever been um, 
and yeah, I, I I feel a little bit like I'm cheating on the hero camera, but my footage looks so good, I'm 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 fine with it. 2019 saw the launch of a number of smartphones with folding screens. Although we eventually only saw the actual release of the Samsung Galaxy Fold, that hasn't stopped manufacturers continuing to investigate and experimenting with folding screen technology in their devices. While we're still waiting for the likes of Huawei, Motorola and others to bring their offerings to market, Lenovo has revealed a laptop with a folding screen at this year's CES, and Mike on the team has already seen it and had a play. So Mike, is it any good? Yeah, it, it's kind of... It, it's, a, it's hard to explain. It's one of those examples that represents kind of what's coming, you know. Um, this is kind of trend word of foldables being in the next big thing, be that from phones or, or whatever, um, now through to laptops. But in a way, it's not really a laptop because it's kind of really a tablet. Um, the whole idea of this thing is it's like a, it's like a little folio, um, comes in a leather case, uh, and you can just unfold it. And that kind of doubles up as this much larger tablet. Um, but it has the potential to be a laptop too. It comes with a little keyboard that you can just magnetically clip onto it. And because the whole screen bends, you can kind of get it into a sensible position. And it's it's a really quirky, kind of interesting little product that works rather well from what I've seen. Yeah, and I think, do you, do, I mean, the big question here is, do, do you think we need a foldable laptop i mean we've started to see foldable phones that become tablets they kind of announced and then didn't really take off and then the next wave of of foldable phones is is like the motorola razor which is interesting also made by uh, a company that's owned by lenovo that's obviously a a flip phone that folded out to be a, a big phone do you think taking it to laptop status is a step too far um i think it depends who who you talk to really because i've seen people using um, as a different example, the Samsung Galaxy Fold. And the people who like that phone basically can't use anything else now. They're like, oh, I'm never going to anything else because this is now an easy-to-use experience. I get the space that I want, but I can still fit it into my pocket. And this is a first generation. So I think it's really a test of time. Um, it might be that it just takes a bit of time to be more refined and reach that point where it just becomes almost like the norm. Um part of the point being to cut down on the the physical size that you can put in your bag um and it's not just lenovo working on this because even at at ces 2020 we saw a bunch of stuff um dell had a similar concept called uh, the ori and uh so did intel as well actually they um they pulled out a thing that they called i believe the horseshoe bend um which is a 17 inch foldable so like a whole different idea so there's definitely companies exploring this from all kinds of different sides and there's an appetite for it in that it's it's exciting to see and it's exciting to use. So we'll have to see. I think it's a test of time. And I suppose we've got the the Microsoft Duo, which is not a foldable screen, but that is two screens, and mm-hmm. that that's coming later in this year. So I wonder if if we'll need to see devices like that being more mainstream before people get used to the idea that they've got a screen on both sides. There's always this kind of test you know testing the water there's there's a, a moment in time where companies make a bunch of different things and go here's three ideas and then it kind of whittles down to one that makes the most sense i mean we've seen it in laptops before when they started adding 360 degree hinges and uh, that was done in a variety of different ways and even now again back at ces uh, lenovo launched another product that had a, a second screen on it as well um it's an e-ink display on the back of one of its think books um 
So there's a whole variety of ways you can approach this kind of two-screen idea. Really having a foldable does it, I think, in quite a different way because it doesn't it doesn't feel like two screens. You, you can make it act like two screens, but it is very much just a single panel. Hence, you can use it, be it as a laptop, something you can just use the pen that comes with it to scroll some notes on. You can stick it on a stand and attach a Bluetooth keyboard and make it a kind of portable desktop. Um, or you can fold it up and have it as a laptop. So it's, it's certainly versatile. It feels like it makes a lot of sense in, in that regard. And when do you think we're going to see, is this pie in the sky stuff or are we actually going to see this no, no. being this, launched? This is proper. This is, uh, it's coming. It's coming. I think they called it mid 2020, which is a little bit vague, but um, there's some stuff to be done yet because as ever with these kind of screens, all this stuff depends on uh, OLED because OLED is a flexible, uh, well, potentially flexible, if that's how you build it into a device, which comes with a plastic coating. So it's often known as POLED. You need to make sure it's reinforced and edged correctly so that stuff doesn't get behind it, which is the issue that Samsung had with its first foldable phone, which kind of ended up killing those screens. Um, so I think the one I saw looked very far along, but it's it's not prototype stage at all now. They just need to, I think, to slightly refine the kind of rubber coating around the, uh, the screen and how that fits on. And then, yeah, I, I suspect come maybe the third quarter, they'll actually start coming out if you can afford one of course yeah what, what's kind of the pricing is what's the pricing going to look like i've only got it in dollars american dollars being uh two and a half grand so i would not hmm. be surprised if that sit level for every current two and a half thousand pounds <laughs> more than likely yeah I, I mean this is this is future stuff you know and if you want it you've got to pay for it um in a way think uh Think books, think pads, all that that range has never been particularly cheap. It's always been highly engineered. It's you know, it uses all sorts of materials from carbon fiber and so on that, that really keep it in that kind of upper echelons of of being a pricey product. Um, and when when you kind of think about it, two thousand five hundred is a lot of money for sure. But you know, the the Samsung phone was not that much less than that. I was going to say it doesn't actually sound. I know, I know, it's the first world problems here. Yeah. Two and a half thousand pound for a laptop, but it it doesn't actually sound that expensive for a laptop that has a very large foldable screen uh, and and all the other stuff. I suppose the big question, though, Mike, is is would you get one? I'd certainly like to play with one for like a longer period of time because. As ever with these these new things, I mean, it's it's the most interesting thing I've seen this year so far in terms of tech. But would it would it gel? Will I will I sort of feel like it makes sense to to live with every day? That's kind of part of the interest of getting the chance to review these things, you know. And uh, hopefully, I'd certainly like to play with it, and it might be the kind of thing that changes my outlook on what a laptop should be. Well, that's it for this week's show. Hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you get a moment, can you please give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform you're listening on? It really will help raise our profile and let others know you like us too. Until next time, pip pip. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.